Hello, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. This week, we bring you something frightening and something inspirational. Our inspirational news is about how unionists are working to change outcomes for refugees in this country. By speaking out at recent rallies in support of refugees and against offshore detention centres. But also, more particularly, returning hope to a Sri Lankan man's family after his death by suicide last year under the shadow of the Immigration Minister's words that all Sri Lankans were economic refugees, not fleeing persecution, and would be sent back to Sri Lanka. But I promise to frighten you first. Corporate resources giant Glencore has accumulated a debt it has started what it calls a doomsday deleveraging plan, shedding employees, reducing production in the hope of raising the price of the commodities. It has a global market share of 60% in the internationally tradable zinc market and 50% in the internationally tradable copper market. Rio Tinto is on the sidelines waiting to pick up cheap assets. Some are saying this is the Lehman's Brothers moment for the commodities markets. You know, the moment before the GFC, the global financial crisis, when the capitalist system teetered on the edge of collapse in 2008. This is important for Australian workers because the Australian governments have put all our eggs in the one mining basket. But there is more. Stick Together spoke to Lauren Mallow, community campaigner with the Environment Centre of the Northern Territory, based in Darwin, who gave some perspective on what it means for a local community ravaged by a resources giant who then cuts jobs and leaves without any intention of cleaning up the environmental mess, all with the assistance of the governments concerned. The MacArthur River mine is an example of the world where corporate resources giants gamble and intersect with working people's lives, isn't it? Can you give us a little bit of an understanding of what's going on in relation to the workers at uh, MacArthur River and Glencore? As people would have seen, Glencore has been in major financial trouble as a result of the global commodity slump. They're heavily exposed on an international level because the company borrowed billions of dollars um, when the commodity prices were high to expand its operations and is now holding debt of over $30 billion, which is impacting on its operations and has forced a number of mine closures, most notably copper mines in Africa, but also last week the announcement that Glencore would be cost-cutting from its Australian zinc operations. MacArthur River Mine uh, operates in the floodplains of the Barclay and Gulf of Carpentaria region of the Northern Territory. In the monsoonal tropics, it's been noted as as being a potential environmental disaster when the mine first went ahead because of its operations in the floodplain there and potential for contamination of the local waterways. Evidence of that has come out 
in the last few years that there's been heavy metal contamination in the rivers um, that are affecting the downstream community there and workers have also been affected on site through lead contamination and other issues. So this mine is in huge economic trouble. It's never made environmental sense and now it no longer makes economic sense. So the workforce there has been reeling from this decision to cut jobs last week um, and we're likely to see further cuts before Glencore um, can restore its operations um, yeah, at the moment they're under significant pressure from their shareholders to continue cutting debt. So we're not sure about the future of this mine, but certainly the community and the workforce, many of them have called for the mine to be moved into a clean-up and closure phase of operations. Which would then give them some work. Yeah, that's right. Look, there's over, uh, over a decade worth of work there to try and fix some of the environmental problems that the mine has created. Basically, it was it was allowed to go to an open-cut operation against the advice of the Northern Territory Environmental Protection Authority back in 2007, which required a six-kilometre diversion of the MacArthur River, basically digging a new canal or ditch to allow huge monsoonal tropical river water to be diverted around an expanding mine pit. Predictably, that led to heavy metal contamination from the ore body entering the waterways, which has now yeah, been noted to affect fish stocks in the river, marine species further downstream and out to sea, um, and also cattle recently where the mine's operating in the middle of a cattle station as well and cattle have had to be banned from exporting culled on site because of lead contamination. The other concern obviously is the human health risk from this level of contamination, both from, uh, from workers exposed to sulfuric uh, smoke on site. There's been plumes of smoke covering that mine site for over a year now where there's been reactive chemistry happening in the, in the mine's waste rock dump. People might have seen photographs of the mine's huge waste rock dump towering over the local escarpment country, um, sending these poisonous um, plumes of smoke over local outstations and their workforce. That's happening because the mine didn't classify its waste rock dump correctly or in accordance with the regulatory authority's direction and meant that this reactive and acidic chemistry has been allowed to fester in the heat and in the exposure to the wet season. We've got acidic runoff coming off that huge waste rock dump at the moment and we've got uh, plumes of toxic smoke billowing off the mine site. So they're just a couple of the examples of the, the, work, the risk to workers and the risk to human health by the mine's operation. Coming from Victoria and uh, the big fights for the forests down here, I remember living in uh, East Gippsland and uh, one of the towns down there actually had a, a town meeting where it was put to them that if they continued to do this timber felling, then they would have only 25 years left and that the whole area would be denuded of forests. And the town voted to uh, to denude the uh the, the, the country for the 25 years. What's happening in the MacArthur River area is another example, environmental destruction caused by corporate uh, resource giants who will withdraw whenever there is actually a, a flutter or a problem with the stock market uh, it, and then there's no more work. People need to reconsider the future of Australia's environment and how it intersects with uh, jobs, right? Yeah, sure. And the, and the problem with this mine has been that the community has never been given a decision and where they've been allowed to object through, um, through assessment processes as this mine expands over the years, um, those objections have been completely ignored or even in some cases legally overturned by, um, by the governments of the day. 
there's an extraordinary history where the community has stood up strongly against this mine from its very inception um, to the point where it became a, a national controversy with the expansion of the open-cut operation and the diversion of the river. Um, traditional owners fought that plan in court. They won in the Supreme Court to try and stop that river diversion from going ahead, both on uh, concerns for environmental and cultural damage because of that um, because of that expansion, and the government of the day simply took a midnight sitting of Parliament, overturned those laws and retrospectively applied laws which would prevent any further challenge to the mine's operations. So there's a really strong history of the community taking both direct action, where they've blockaded the, the diversion in some cases, um, taking other forms of action, legally challenging its operations to try and stop this. So definitely the the will of the community is to shut this mine down and stop it poisoning their local waterways and, and putting their community at risk. Um, what's happened now is that there's been more national attention on this um, on this struggle to actually shut this mine down. And I think it's, it's clearly at a point where Glencore's operations cannot be justified and cannot be saved out there because the structural integrity of the entire mine site is compromised by the fact that it's got reactive and acidic waste rock dumps leaching into waterways here and sending off plumes of toxic smoke. So it's pretty clear that this mine will close. Um, it's just a matter of whether the community has other opportunities there in terms of a, a transition plan, a post-mining transition plan, which means that local jobs aren't lost and the community doesn't suffer again uh, through the economic downturn that, that may result from this mine closing. You know, there is a level of reliance um, by the local uh, community because the government doesn't fulfil its responsibilities to provide services in most remote communities. So there are some some big issues, but the community is confronting those by, by coming up with their own solutions and they have tra a transition plan that they want to see implemented, um, which we're putting to the Federal and Northern Territory governments to say, look, this mine is compromising the future viability of this entire region. You know, the independent monitor for that mine uh, warned that if this mine was allowed to continue operations in its current form, um, the downstream consequences would be catastrophic on a regional scale. Um, so that kind of thing has pushed out other viable industries like fishing, um, like pastoralism, um, people running homeland tourism operations and things because they're dealing with compromised water quality um, and other issues from the mine. So this mine really is cancelling out the future for a lot of people living downstream of it. And that is why they're fighting so hard to try and move this mine to clean up. And that's something that we don't take responsibility for in terms of mining in Australia and, and elsewhere, is the rehabilitation and the inevitable clean-up phase um, that needs to be fully costed by companies like Glencore. There's a big struggle on at the moment to actually get this company to front up uh, an appropriate rehabilitation bond that means some of that clean-up work could actually happen and be funded and that people wouldn't lose their jobs if the mine did close. So that's another big challenge and one that, that uh, movements that are pushing back against inappropriate mining and invasive mining need to be thinking about is how do we actually move to this clean-up phase of operations and make sure that companies who pollute, companies that damage country like this are forced to pay for it at the end of their operational life. If people want to check out uh, more information about this, there's a short film that's been released online recently called Sick Country. Um, which talks about the damage done um, both to the com local community, to people's culture and to the environment around MacArthur River. So they can find more out about that there and also on the Environment Centre Northern Territory's website and Facebook page. Um, but yeah, it really is a case study in, in governments allowing companies to run riot over local people's wishes and the environment and for very little economic return. You know, 
there's, there's barely any royalties that are paid by Glencore to the Northern Territory Government, yet we've seen the government time and time again bend over backwards to change laws to allow this mine to operate and expand. So that, that type of thinking has got to end, and, and I think movements have got a responsibility to think about the other opportunities that we can create um, in communities to help people move away from this type of mining and create a better future for themselves. to make welcome as our next speaker, Colin Long, who is the State Secretary of the National Tertiary Education Union. The NTEU has a long and proud history of standing up for refugee rights, whether that be from attending rallies and organising contingents to them, to maintaining really excellent and progressive union positions, both as formal policy and in rank and file committees. And as we keep saying today, it's ordinary people and ordinary workers who will change our refugee policy. So I'm really happy to welcome Colin Long. Thank you very much and great to see so many of you out here today. The bipartisan policy of imprisoning refugees in Ireland prison camps is based on lies and cruelty. The biggest lie of all, which seems to have been accepted by most journalists and commentators today, in the mainstream media at least, is that the boats have stopped. This is a lie. You repeat a lie often enough and it becomes an accepted truth. The reality is that the boats have stopped coming to Australia. But refugees continue to flee the many places of danger, many of which we have contributed to the destabilisation and chaos in. The boats haven't stopped, they're just going elsewhere. Instead of heading to punishment in Australia, they are heading to more humane places, like some places in Europe. Far from stopping the boats, we have simply redirected them away from our shores. Just as we refuse to pull our weight on another great global challenge, climate change, we refuse to contribute to solving the great global refugee crisis. This is a disgrace. More shameful, though, is the use of cruelty as an instrument of government policy. Let us be clear about this. Refugees are being imprisoned offshore and subjected to all manner of abuse in order to deter others. The Australian government, as a matter of conscious policy, is creating conditions for refugees that are worse than the conditions from which, which many of them flee. That is, that is conscious Australian government policy. We are engaged in this country, finally, in a public discourse about how to stop violence towards women. Yet our government's protestations of concern about such violence do not appear to extend to those of different faiths or colour who have asked for our shelter. In indeed, the opposite is true. The government and its supporters perpetrate violence in order to so-called stop the boats. The murderous events in Turkey over the last day or so, on top of so many others, suggest that a new barbarism is stalking the world. We must speak up and stand up against this barbarism in all its forms, 
including when it is perpetrated in our name and by our government. Thank you for coming today to stand up and to speak up against such barbarism. You're listening to Stick Together, Workers' Stories and Union News. We just heard Colin Long from the National Tertiary Education Union, the NTEU. He came out with over 2,000 people to the steps of the State Library in Melbourne on Sunday, October the 11th, in support of refugees. The incident in Turkey Colin is talking about is the two bomb blasts that killed 130 people in Ankara on the weekend, where the thousands of unionists and other activists were gathered in support of peace and in opposition to the hard-line tactics of the Turkish president, Endrigan, who recently lost his majority in the government, despite the government's assessment that it was probably Islamic State. Witnesses to Saturday's massacre said that police attacked demonstrators and volunteer responders in the wake of the blasts. Police fired tear gas at bystanders rushing to help. Yusil, a demonstrator from Turkish city of Kars, said police pulled him away from a dying woman he had tried to help. Shrapnel had shredded the side of her body and blood was pouring from her ears. She grabbed my pant leg as I walked by and said, Help me, Yusel said. He did not want to give his full name for fear of arrest. The police came and said, Leave her. They are terrorists. They don't deserve to be helped. You're on Stick Together with Annie McLaughlin. We now go and talk to Tim Gooden, Secretary of the Geelong Trades Hall Council, for a better perspective on life than we just experienced. Tim recently worked with Aaron Milvergenman from the Tamil Refugee Council to achieve economic justice for the family of Leo Simampillai, a man who was a refugee from persecution but who ultimately despaired for his life. Leo Simapillay was a Tamil refugee to Australia. How did you get to meet Leo? It was uh, winter a couple of years ago. There was a whole heap of um, asylum seekers released from the detention camps into the Geelong community. And um, there's a whole heap of guys that arrived here with um, only summer clothes out of the Darwin Detention Centre. And the Tamil Association of Australia and... Um, the local uh, settlement program got a heap of them together here at Geelong Trades Hall to talk to them and to welcome them to Geelong Trades Hall. And I met all the boys then, and uh, they didn't have any coats or feather dooners or and anything. And um, the local construction workers did a whip around, and we got them a heap of blueies and coats. Uh, and then we got them some fishing gear a little bit later on, a few bikes, just to sort of tie them over and uh, to keep them busy because they weren't allowed to work they only get 80 percent of the dole it was all a bit hard in in the, in the early days you know and um so i got to know a couple of them that could uh, speak english because they became the main um interpreters for everybody and then later on i was giving a, a couple of them who eventually got work permits to helping them to look for work and do their CVs and stuff like that. I'm, I'm the co-convener for the Combined Refugee Action Group and we had a number of activities on in the early... Um, we, we 
with uh, local asylum seekers, but our main priority was um, campaigning uh, against the federal government, um, to both federal governments, to change the um, the, the laws around uh, asylum seekers. And uh, as as well as once they're here, being able to work, I guess. Well, yeah. And uh, Leo was one of those in the early days, and um, a couple of years ago, and um, uh, and he had a few bits and pieces um, here and there, and then he got uh, a regular couple of days with, with with two employers. Fortunately, as luck would have it, um, both those employers had industry super funds, um, so he had two super funds with CBUS, the Building Industry Super and with Hester. The 1st of June last year, 2014, Leo died. Um, he died from wounds um, from um, self-emulation. We set fire to yourself, which unfortunately is a very common uh, occurrence in um, Asia and the subcontinent, usually to do with protest. Um, it's not the nicest way to go, that's for sure. And at the time, Leo was under a huge amount of stress because there's a lot of rumours going around with the then Minister Morrison um, threatening to send uh, Tamil refugees back to Sri Lanka. In fact, he um, didn't just threaten. He he actually said that all Tamil refugees would be returned to Sri Lanka. That's right. That's right. So they were in the middle of negotiating with the Sri Lankan government and the Sri Lankan Navy, and um, there's all sorts of things going on around Australia and overseas, and there's a real genuine fear that these boys from the, that would go back, these young men would be sent back, um, and of course a lot of them had already been tortured, um, and they already had family members who were either tortured, missing, or being killed, and um, uh, that's still a real fear to, today. After those tragic circumstances, and we tried to get the family to come out for the funeral, there was lots of media coverage and the age and the local media, etc. Um, uh, we couldn't get the family out. Uh, the government said, no, there'd be a flight risk. His family um, were refugees in India, in a refugee camp uh, in Tamil Nadu in India, which is down in the south. We couldn't get them out for the funeral. So we did all the funeral here, and, and Leo is buried here in the Geelong Cemetery. In the, in the throes of that, um, those circumstances, uh, 30 days, in the Tamil culture, 31 days after um, a funeral, after a death, they have a, a special ceremony where everyone comes together to share food and to share food with the person who's um, deceased. So I was at that function and I met one of the employers and one of the employers said to me, he said, oh, look, I've got this paperwork for CBUS and I've got to, you know, it's, it's got to be dealt with. And that's when I realised from my union work, um, where we do this sort of work every day for um, workers in the building industry and elsewhere, that the superannuation funds have a disability and uh, a death benefit. If you get cancer or if you become disabled, uh, you can get an early payout. Um, there's insurance for funeral cover, and etc. And, and that's the... not the same in private superannuation, is it? No, a lot of the private superannuation is, is only superannuation. There are various different private life insurances that you can take out. I don't think many of them cover um, circumstances of suicide. The industry super for building industry and Hester does, uh, and so Leo's benefactors were still entitled to that um, death and disability benefit. So we worked out, well, the only way that um, the trustees of those um, bodies are going to be satisfied um, with um, the benefactors is that we're able to meet with them, record it, go to court, 
establish um, not only identity but also a number of other um, things that had to be recorded in uh, statutory declarations. Um, but the other issue too was to get them out of the refugee camps and into a normal city life um, with an address, a bank account, the normal security and, and so forth that you and I have in a, in a city. And we were lucky the community down here had already raised several thousand dollars. Great people and they passed the hat around and we already had several thousand dollars sent to his family. That money was able to get them into the city and um, out of the refugee camp and then uh, establish a normal life. We, we went over there 10 days before last Christmas and we spent that 10 days meeting with the family, returning all Leo's belongings, which was very difficult. Um, so we had to give him all his clothing and his paperwork and his Tamil Bible and, and stuff like that. So it was all awkward and sad. And then we had to get him into court, um, find a, a QC, a barrister, to, um, to do all the paperwork, um, record it all, um, have everything certified and copied across in, in translated in the languages. And then I brought it back Christmas Eve to Australia, had it all um, uh, copied and certified by solicitors here in Geelong and then presented um, to the, the industry funds and they were, then went through their normal checking processes with their trustees, etc., etc. And then finally, uh, about a month late, a couple of months later, probably February, um, one lot of monies was sent. Once that cleared with the authorities, because um, you can imagine money being large amounts of money being sent into the country it triggers off all sorts of alarms, particularly with refugees. So once the authorities were happy with that, that it was all a genuine, um, they were receiving genuine benefits um, from, from Australia, um, and uh, the second lot of money went over, um, and now um, they're able to, um, sadly, make a, a decent sort of life for themselves, um, for the brothers, the mother and the father, um, in, in India. When, once we realised that we were going to have to go there physically, um, then uh, it was, uh, I getting the time off and, and getting the money to do it. And it was only for the fortunate that um, I went to the, my union, the CFMU Construction Division in Victoria, and um, put a case to the executive, and they looked at it, and they said, yeah, look, we do this for any of our members and workers all the time to make sure that they get their benefits. And... Um, this, this poor bugger um, should be able to get, his family should be able to get the benefits as well. So the CFMU Victoria agreed to fund us to go over and cover our cost to get there and back before Christmas and get all the paperwork done. So without them really, well, without the unions, there wouldn't be this fund and there wouldn't be people getting paid their super every month. Um, and the benefits that all come with that. Uh, without the CFMU, I wouldn't have been able to do anything about it anyway. That's it for Stick Together today. Thanks to you for listening. We have to thank Lauren Mallor from the Northern Territory Environment Centre, Colin Long from the NTEU and Tim Gooden from the Geelong Trades Hall Council for speaking to us today. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at stick.together at gmail.com or by calling 039419 8377. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Catch you next time.
name is Selva Coolidgevin, and I am fighting for my life. Thirty-seven months I've been held. I miss my child. I miss my wife. Escape the clutches of the men with guns. Sri Lanka was my home. Australia put me in a prison camp. Now it's three years gone. Here they treat me like a worthless human being. Do they see me as a worthless human being? Well, they do not know. Officials here they question me. They say they want me to return. But how can I go back now when I've seen my people burn? It's hard to go on living when your future is denied. Yes, we'll wear you down. It's true, I could be one more suicide. So say I'm not a worthless human being, 'cause no one needs a worthless human being. My family need a worthwhile human being, so they can know. Even born when I crossed the raging sea, my daily voice on the telephone is all she knows of me. I hold her photo in my hand and I dream of a better time. How do I explain her dad's in jail when I'm guilty of no crime? Can you see me as a worthwhile human being? Only I wanna be a worthwhile human being. Can you let me be a worthwhile human being? We all need to know.